Hey guys, welcome back to Deeper Than Most. I'm your host, Sav. And I'm your host, DJ. And today we are coming back to you guys with episode six. And this one gets pretty interesting because it's another true crime case. Yes. And we know how much you guys love those. Yes, and this is the second episode to our FNC series. Mm -hmm. So today's state that we're covering is going to be Alaska. Which isn't really talked about that much, so it'll be it fun isn't. to cover it. Yeah, definitely. You don't hear much about Alaska, so um, I think it'll be really cool to dive into that and see what Alaska has for us. I think this is a really crazy case. I think one of the reasons you probably don't hear much about Alaska is because um, apparently a lot of people just go missing there. Really? Yeah. I did not know that, actually. I think it's like near what? A million people? <laughs> like a year? Yeah. Jeez, that's a lot. I mean, I'll check again to be sure, but And still, it's funny because, like, I want to go to Alaska one day. It's so beautiful. I want to see the northern lights. Yeah. Um, But, damn. Yeah, for sure. So, I'll, kind like, of I'll definitely, I'll Probably definitely because it's so boring. Sure, well, I don't want to say it's boring out there, but, you know, it's small towns and they don't have very much to do. Right, so, but I mean. The crime rate's probably higher because of that. Could be. Hold on. Let me lift my chair up a little. I feel small. <laughs> Okay, so we have four current events for you guys today, and we've got some pretty interesting ones. Um, more lighthearted for these current events, just because today's topic is a true crime episode, and you know we kind of want to start it off just being a little more on the positive side and right. being a little more lighthearted because today's case is pretty heavy. Pretty heavy. Yes. So. We're going to go ahead and dive into our current events. And the first one is a local current event for us. Um, we live in Oregon currently, and this is something that happened in the Pacific Northwest. So this is like something that like if you live on the West Coast, um, like particularly Washington State or Oregon, um, you would have seen this event. So... Yeah, we did see it though. I think oh we yeah, we missed. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you could have seen it because we missed it. Right. Um. So a mysterious object was seen flying through the Oregon sky on March 25th. I wonder what time it was though. Okay. I'm I'm gonna get into it. <laughs> People of the PNW were stunned, thrilled, and frightened that Thursday night when witnessing this appearance. Viewers reported the sighting to be around 9 p.m. And it was seen by people as far as or as far north as Seattle, um, so pretty much everybody could see it. Everybody except us. What were we doing? I don't know. We were, honestly, huh? Yeah, I have no clue. Um, the object or like objects, because it was one, but it broke into like hundreds of fragments mm. um haven't been completely confirmed mm -hmm. but it is highly speculated that the objects um, may be debris from a spacex falcon 9 rocket mm. so some more rocket buffoonery some going on more rocket power yeah pretty much and uh it's just kind of odd because a lot of these rockets lately have been blowing up there was what was the last one that blew up? Um, it was what was it called? 
What I don't even remember called? what it was called. Yeah, I don't remember either. But, um, yeah, there was one earlier in the month that exploded, and we did cover that in our current events on um, our fourth episode, the Sherry Lynn Marler case. Be sure to check that out if you haven't already. Yes, that one's a very interesting case as well. It's pretty suspicious, if you might ask me. Um, this theory was backed up by Dr. Jonathan McDowell. He was an, or he is an astronomer at the Center of Astrophysics, Harvard and the Smith, uh, Smithsonian. Nice. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yes. So we're going to go ahead and play, um, a video because there were multiple videos that were like sent to the press, um, over the weekend mm-hmm. of just people taking videos like from their phone. Mm-hmm to document what they saw in the sky because hell nobody really knew what it was when they saw it that's actually kind of cool yeah so we're gonna go ahead and play um a clip now and we're gonna go ahead and watch it with you guys so let's go ahead and insert that now oh wow isn't that beautiful that is nice that's real cool to look at yeah, no, I didn't see anything like that in this guy. Yeah, and if you're watching this audio-wise, I definitely recommend going on YouTube or Google and just looking it up. That's kind of scary, though. Like, just imagine... Not like, knowing what it is, going yeah. Going about your night and then, like, something just, like, falling out of the sky on fire. <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely recommend you guys go and check it out. It's a pretty cool visual. Yes. So, and if you're watching this on YouTube, we did insert the clip. But that is our first intro topic, and it's pretty cool. Um, It does look really pretty, though. It was like twinkling lights. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. But if it was um, the rocket debris, the reason why it was so many, like, little pieces is because it had exploded, in a sense. Mm. And so they were all, like, on fire, Mm -hmm. just, like, flying through the sky. Um, And they knew it wasn't a comet or, like, a meteorite because, Mm -hmm. well, a comet because it was too low. And then a meteorite because it wasn't fast enough to be a meteor. So, yeah, they knew that. It was kind of, like, obvious. They put it together. Like, you know, that would have been the time that the rocket would have been over here. So, yeah. Right. But it's kind of cool, you know, mm-hmm. just definitely. to see. It, it looks pretty. Like, think about that. It's like, not something you see every day, yeah. still, so. Going about your night, you just see something falling out of the sky. Yeah. That looked kind of cool. It's like, it gets even better with these current events because I didn't even know that they rank uh, happiness in countries. I didn't, I didn't either. Did that. So yeah. apparently Finland has been ranked the happiest country in the world for four years straight. Now this is our fourth year. That's kind of cool. If that's the case, we need to I move to Finland. <laughs> <laughs> it says the second place is Switzerland, third being Iceland and the Netherlands. And also data was collected from analytics researcher Gallup asking people in 149 countries to rank their happiness. That's a pretty interesting study, though. I've I never been what... asked to rank my happiness. <laughs> right. I wonder, like... I wonder, like, who what they, they find and yeah. how they go about doing research like, you, like that. Who do you survey for that type of stuff? Hmm. 
and measured, it's measured through social support, personal freedom, gross domestic product, and levels of corruption. Oh, kind of interesting, isn't it? That makes it? sense. So the U.S. is like, but it makes sense. Social support. I feel like in the U.S. there isn't a lot of social support, like just within communities, but also like on social media, there's just not a lot of support. Right. And then also when it comes down to like, for example, personal freedom. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting one to tap into as well because. We'd have freedoms in America as well, but then again, we don't know what their freedoms are like in Finland, and they're right. probably a little bit more than right. what we have. Which I mean, I would definitely here. like look into it. Yeah, why are they so happy? That's and of- the levels of corruption. That's, that's a really interesting one, one because if that's the case. That yeah. means that they're not that corrupt, which is really good for them. Yeah. But like, it just sucks because living in the U.S., like we know. Is that everything's corrupt and they know that we know, but they don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I wonder what it's like living in a country that's actually ran like how it's supposed to be. Right. I <laughs> guess we do need to visit Finland. Right. But back to Finland again, because our third current event is uh, an event that happened in Finland. Um, a French diver by the name of Arthur Guerin Bowery, I think that's his name. That's what we're going to have to go with. <laughs> yeah. Set the world record for longest under ice swim on March 25th. And I just want to do All right, like, a round of applause. Like, that was great. That's, that is hard. It even sounds yeah. hard. Like swimming under ice. Swimming alone. Money, right? <laughs> yes. And it gets even better. I'm, I'm going to get into the details of him breaking this world record because it's actually quite like not just interesting but it's very impressive that too. is impressive like he, i don't know the human body is a very impressive like yes thing, but he know? really like, like killed it yeah so this is what he looks like um very fit he looks pretty young too yeah he looks like he's like mid-30s yeah so that is him and he swam 394 feet in a frozen lake in Finland. I wonder how 394 you, how you feet. For um, so, you know, you just do regular, like, swimming training, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it's a more focused on your breathing techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so he completed this in three minutes in Wait. Lake Sonenin. I think it's Sonenin or Sonanin. I don't know. Uh, Sonanen sounds right. Sonanen? I don't know. <laughs> but he completed it in three minutes. 394 three minutes. feet. Three minutes. He was in going. In three like, minutes. he is a fish. <laughs> and to top it all off, he completed this swim, this 394-foot swim that took three minutes in one single breath. Oh, wow. So he literally took one breath before he jumped he into said, the water. Like, that's amazing right there. Yeah, like, like, that lung capacity. To hold your breath for Chef's three kiss. minutes under yeah. ice cold Frozen water, water yeah. It, well, semi-frozen, I guess. Ice cold, Either yeah. Like, that um, takes a, like, that's a lot for your lungs to have to do with. Exactly, <laughs> yes. And so he did do a lot of breathing techniques. He also, well, he trained for two hours right before the swim as well. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Mainly focused on his breathing techniques, but he also sat in a sauna um, within those two hours as well. It's for, like, mental discipline. Probably. 
Um, and he did it in like a, a suit. He wants to break the record again in within a year, mm-hmm. but he wants to do it in a, a bathing suit next time instead of like a whole <laughs> swimsuit. Bathing suit, Jesus. Yeah. Um, and he is from nice France and holds four world records. Oh, so this guy's just cool. I wonder what his girlfriend like. Yeah, I know, right? Bragging rights right <laughs> there. Really? That's kind of cool. <laughs> so I think you'll really love this intro topic, and uh, you guys would too. This one was probably like the most interesting one. Um, so if you want, we can do it bullet point by bullet point, or if I'm you cool. want to take it over. I'm cool with that. We can do bullet point by bullet point. Okay. So this one deals with the world's oldest computer. Hmm. A 2,000-year-old device, referred to as the world's oldest computer, has been recreated by scientists to see how it worked. The Antikythera... I think I said that right. Antikythera. Yes. The Antikythera mechanism was found on a Roman-era shipwreck in Greece all the way back in 1901. Okay, so can we just take a minute to, like, (laughs) take that in for a second. 2,000 years old. Yeah. 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of cool. So, like, I know that we ended up um, developing the whole technology and, in in like, you know, computers and stuff, like, in the late 80s, early 90s. But, right. like, the fact that there is a 2,000-year-old... Computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. It's pretty cool. And this is what it looks like. Well, this is what they assumed that it would look like. Mm. Um, it honestly looks like a clock. If you like ask a, me. Yeah, it does kind of look like a clock. So lots of gears and, and circles and spheres and turny, spinny thingies. <laughs> um, lots of that. That's kind of cool. It's thought to have been used to predict eclipses and other astro astronomical events, which is kind of, um, I guess, it's the equivalent to like the Mayan calendar in a sense. Yes, but the fact that they were able to predict those things right. all the way back in the I ni- mean, like look, guys, 1901 I'm not that was the beginning of you know like a lot don't. of the modern era like yeah. that's just that was unheard of back a then a cool I'm step sure. into the 20th century at that point yeah like we weren't that advanced back then look guys Very i'm not off. saying that they're aliens i'm just saying watch out for all these different leaders and civilizations that y'all be looking up right <laughs> um, unfortunately, only one third of the device survived all of those years. Of course. Well, see, the thing is, there were 84 parts that they found, but those 84 parts only amounted to one third of the whole complete, like, mechanism. I wonder. Ooh, so, be there's a, a lot cool. of missing pieces to it. They don't even have half. That'd be but, a cool, like, little scavenger hunt like yeah game well no it just didn't survive or oh, like they just weren't just able to find it. it yeah it was oh. a shipwreck that they found it on because yeah. so they really a... got lucky to even find a third of it right that would have been a cool like little game premise though like just imagine like, oh yeah trying to find like a mystery pieces. game yeah mm-hmm. uh the complex gear system in front of the device has been a mystery since it was discovered so they don't even know what's going on with it they don't even know <laughs> right exactly Scientists at UCL, so this is um, a college in London, think they cracked the puzzle with 3D computer modeling. They've created the front panel and hope to build a full-scale replica with modern materials. So they're Mm. kind of like trying to create a 3D version of it um, with what they have. So I don't know like per se how they know what the rest of it is supposed to look like but i think just based off of what they have they can kind of get an idea it's kind of like 
It's kind of like Come how they do that same thing with um, historical figures. I've seen them um, take a part of maybe, let's say, Pontius Pilate. They've done a part of his face and then like were able to recreate his entire face or what he would have looked like. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's that same deal. Right. Could be. Uh-huh. So it says, the sun, moon, and planets are displayed in Greek brilliance. You remember hmm. the next one, too? Yeah. I don't... Do you know what Greek brilliance is? Or have it's any? just saying, like, the way it's displayed, like... Ah, uh, it's just like... Okay. Yes. I yeah. gotcha. Uh, it's actually the world's first analog computer and astronomical calculator, which is a very interesting crack, because I always wondered, like, how... You know, somebody was just like, okay, we're going to create a computer. No. Right. <laughs> the fact that they were, like, thinking about computers back then, though. It's a huge step for humans. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, something that we didn't find, like, until, you know, quite recently. I think it was 2017 when they originally found it. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I think. I'm not completely sure. They plan to use picture x-ray data and ancient Greek math method, or methods... To piece it together. Here we go. So math. because they only have a third of it, they're going to use, yeah, ancient Greek math to piece it together. I don't understand how you would do that, but they are. So kudos to them. I don't know, but great job, guys. Keep yeah. it up. <laughs> so getting into this case, it's going to be a very heavy one. So disclaimer to anyone out there. Um, if you have a problem with murder mysteries or if you have a problem with these type of cases... You can look away or, you know, just listen. This is the podcast for you. Right. <laughs> oh, and isn't there, uh, like, a death of a minor in this case? A couple of minors? A uh, death of two minors. Yeah, yes. so it is a little more heavy. Um, but without further ado, let's go ahead and spill the beans. So just a quick little summary here. September 7th, 1982, a ship is anchored just outside of Craig, Alaska. The ship was engulfed in flames and this led to a very peculiar investigation. When investigators began looking over the scene, a horrid realization was made. This was no accident. A a Blaine Washington family and their deckhands were found murdered on the vessel and from here, the mystery of why begins. So, the setting. Where did it happen? Um, This case takes place in Craig, Alaska, and Craig is a small town in southeastern Alaska with a population of 1,300 people. That's it. Jeez. That's it. Yeah, that's (laughs) a small town. Yeah. This has been a static number because the town is 220 miles south of Juneau. Oh, Juneau. Mm. I've never seen Juneau spelled like that. It actually might be Juneau, but I'm just going to say it's Juneau because usually when... It's spelled like that. They don't usually say the A in Okay. <laughs> Which is the capital. Oh, mm-hmm. Juneau, Alaska. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Brain fart. Um, it is a small town, but is or it is the most populated town on Prince of Wales Island. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so the other ones are smaller. They have to Obviously, be. Yeah. yeah. The fourth largest island geographically in the United States, um, but this is accessible only by boat or plane. Um, it is known by those in the commercial fishing industry, especially those in the salmon trade, which is a very important detail that you kind of want to keep in mind for this case. Um, salmon that. trade is very popular mm-hmm. in Craig. This happened between September 5th and September 7th, by the way. And... It gets really grim. 
So there's a small family of four, technically five. We have Irene Coulters, and this is the wife of our, I guess you could say, captain. He was the captain? Yeah. The husband? Yeah. It's the wife of our captain. And she is 28 years old, and she was also three months pregnant. Oh. Yeah. I did not know that. Mm. Okay, mm. continue. So then you have Mark, the captain. Mr. Colthurst is a 28-year-old, and he's been working in this industry since he was like 16. And with all his hard work, this made him able to buy his very expensive boat, which is like $750,000, and he named it The Investor. And so then we get into their 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 young children. You have Kimberly Coulters and John Coulters. Uh, Kimberly is five years old, and she was actually set to start kindergarten the week of the murders. So when they got back from the trip, she was supposed to start kindergarten. Uh-huh. But never got a chance to. Yeah. Okay. And then you have little Johnny. He's four years old and actually celebrated his fourth birthday a few weeks before the whole incident. Damn. You know, like when kids pass away, it's very hard to think about because they never got to live their life, you know? Yeah, especially at such a young age. Like, she didn't even right. start kindergarten. He was just four. Like. But, but the thing about it is, like you know that they were probably living their last days or their last weeks happy. Yeah, Hopefully. Sure. Like, the fact that he had just celebrated his birthday, he probably did enjoy that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then with her, like, excited about starting kindergarten, probably, like... Yeah. Um, so there were also deckhands involved. Um, these were young men... Or, young men. <laughs> <laughs> these were young men handpicked by Mark himself. He believed they were capable of doing the painstaking, yet rewarding hard work that salmon fishing came with. He also knew them and got along with them well enough for them to live among his family and work on his expensive fishing vessel. Um, so the four deckhands were Chris Heyman, mm -hmm. who was 17 years old, days away from his 18th birthday. Jeez. Yeah. It's tough stuff. That would suck. Really tough stuff. Yeah. Dean Moon, um, who was a 19-year-old football star at Blaine High School. Jerome Keown, 19-year-old 19 honor student at Seattle University. And Michael Stewart, who was Mark's cousin. And he was also looking forward to starting at Washington State University in the fall, so WSU. Mm -hmm. Ooh. So everybody had something to look forward to. Yeah, it was a lot of uh, hopeful and bright futures. Yeah, that were, that were just away. taken. Yeah terrible so on sunday afternoon september 5th the 58 foot investor hauling roughly 77,000 pounds of salmon pulled into craig's seaport mark was hoping to offload the haul for thirty thousand dollars in a non-cash exchange this was because mark didn't usually deal with um cash investors he didn't like to carry cash with them out at sea smart man yeah Mark and his crew were, were able to offload later in the afternoon, but they would have to stay in Craig a day or two later because the Alaska Department of Fish and Game closed salmon season the week prior. But they were reopening that Monday. Oh, so they were like technically right on time. Yeah, they were practically Like by the time right. they would have got there, they would have had time to set up and, you know, do what they got to do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know much about salmon fishing, but it seems like a pretty... Very true. Yeah, <laughs> I don't either. 
Um, after unloading the haul, the investor was tied to two other ships. Owned by his business partner, John Curry's brother, Clyde, and another ship named the Defiant that were tied to Craig's North, or, or they were tied to um, Craig's North Cove dock. Um, when the vessel was latched to deckhands, Jerome and Dean went ashore to make a few calls, get drinks, and to buy some, some green, some devil's lettuce from a deckhand aboard another ship. So they were just out there enjoying. Yeah, I mean, why not? Like, we're probably here tomorrow. You know, we're here for tonight. So, a close Beautiful views, I'm sure. Right, definitely. A closer look into the night of September 5th. So Mark didn't typically sail through Craig whenever he would head to or from Alaska, so this was kind of new for him. So that meant, you know, the locals weren't that familiar with him or his crew, so he only did it because it was convenient. And his family was set to fly back to Washington State that Monday. So Mark was a familiar face to other commercial fishermen in Craig that night, so everybody was just cool with him and friendly. Cool and just... A Just people person. Passing, Everybody yeah, loves them. Through. Yeah, definitely. Like you. <laughs> Everybody loves you. I kid you not. Everybody like stops him whenever we're out. Oh, they love they her love too. Him. She gets free stuff sometimes. No, <laughs> you get the free stuff. I'm the bad luck charm. He's the good luck charm. And we kind of just even out the playing field. Good and bad stuff happens, but good stuff happens only when he's around. I mean, you know what? <laughs> only so. when you're involved. <laughs> So the Colthurst family decided to go to Ruth Ann's restaurant. And at the time, um, this was one of Craig's few restaurants. And coincidentally, it happened to be Mark's 28th birthday. A lot of birthdays. Yeah. Hmm. So everybody was out just enjoying the night. And, you know, Mark and his friends were eating. And his friend, I guess his friend didn't have enough money to pay for his meal. So he wrote him a check for $100. Because, again, you know, Mark doesn't like to have cash out at sea. Right. Especially like large amounts, it's just yeah, never no, smart. It's not good, especially like don't want to walk around with large amounts of cash. You can either drop it, lose it somewhere, get robbed. Yes, that. exactly. Not a smart move. So, witnesses say the family stayed at the restaurant until nine thirty p.m. and so they were crossing between their boats to turn in for the night. And a crewman aboard the Decade recalls four-year-old John popping in the pilot house just to say, "Hey." Mm-hmm. So that means that kind of late into the night, because I guess you can consider like nine thirty, ten o'clock late. Yeah, yeah for that some they people. were fine. Mm-hmm. They were okay. Yeah. Okay. An eerie silence. The last sighting of the Coulter's family was just after ten p.m. when they left the restaurant. So once again, kind of late into the night, but still fairly early. It kind of just depends on who you're asking. Because mm-hmm. to us. That's pretty early in the night, but right. somebody else, that's pretty late. Or I guess to the common folk, like, that would be pretty late at night. Right. On Monday morning of September 6th at 6.30 a.m., a crew member aboard the Decade noticed the investor slowly idling away. It was later discovered that the expensive tie lines used to connect the ships were left on the Decade. The crewman found this weird because the lines are typically reused. He also saw a man in the pilot house and assumed it was Mark due to the man's similar build and gait. It was later reported that the main engine of the investor was not running, which would indicate that the man the crewman saw was not Mark or one of his crew members. 
Crews typically use the main engine to guide their path. And so it seems like, you know, the guy was trying to get away quietly. You know? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, trying to sneak off. Yeah. Right. An odd departure. So 15 minutes later at 645, Clyde Curry comes to the deck to see the same man that his crew member was talking about. Um, they believed it was Mark heading out to take advantage of the open salmon season because, you know, a lot of people like, especially people that do fit, go fishing or not, they like yeah. to be up really early just to catch them. Early bird gets the worm. Right. So Clyde described the man being average height with a sake build, light brown or blonde hair, and wearing a black and red plaid wool jacket. Hmm. And where did they see him again the second time? Just mm -hmm. out and about walking around? The second time. Or was he near the boat? Yeah, that. The second time, um, he was, like, near the boat. It gets murky. Okay. Like the water? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. So, 45 minutes later, at 7.30, a crew member of another ship saw the investors settle near Fish Egg Island, which is a mile away from Craig. It appeared that the ship had been anchored, but several people saw the skiff, or, you know, the small boat used to ferry the crew to and from town, tied to the main dock. Later in the morning, a thick fog fell over the area as the vessels began to prepare for the upcoming salmon season. The following morning on Tuesday, which brings us to September 7th, the thick fog that covered Craig began to lift finally. Mm -hmm. The locals were surprised to see the investor was still docked at the harbor near Fish Egg Island, which was a mile away. Mm -hmm. This was strange because the locals expected the investor would take advantage of the last salmon season before heading to Bellingham, Washington, where it would usually dock during off-season. Oh, I've been to Bellingham. It's so beautiful out there. Oh, nice. Yeah. The locals did not know Mark's wife and kids were supposed to be flying back to Washington State that Monday to get Kim ready for school because, like we previously stated, she was supposed to be starting kindergarten as yeah. soon as they were to get back. Um, they missed their flight and there was no sign of life from the investor since being piloted or since being seen piloted by the mysterious man. So when they first initially saw the guy, they just it was assumed. just a random guy yeah, they piloting the boat. Enough. So Yeah. Um, that morning a young man was seen purchasing two and a half gallons of gas in Craig and leaving with it aboard the investor's skiff. Unbelievable. That's kind of scary. That's not Sketch. even kind of scary. That's so he was very just walking scary. amongst everybody, probably. right? Just and around. nobody noticed. You know, like you don't think to question like who could this person be? Like you know, know. you're just going on yeah, just, about your regular right. daily life. And, and of course, like nobody know. Like like I said, nobody knows. You know that anything has happened. Yeah, yeah. So exactly, they're just assuming. Okay, maybe he's just out doing his thing or whatever, whatever. Right. The tragedy and its findings. Around 4 p.m., a troller named Casino noticed smoke coming from Fish Egg Island, where the investor was docked. The crew members aboard the ship alerted the Alaskan state troopers from nearby Ketchikan and proceeded to go try and stop the fire and save any passengers, if there were any. The crew passed by a young man wearing a dark baseball cap. He was heading toward Craig, but he stopped and spoke with the crew members as if he were seeking help and continued toward his destination. That's suspicious, dude. Yeah. Who, whoever the suspect was, like, he was just willy-nilly, like, just walking around. Yeah, just, like, Nobody around. suspected a thing. And that's what's scary about a lot of these types of cases. It's like, you just never know. And, like, right. honestly, you could be walking past anybody that could have just did anything. 
like me now as a person just because like since I've gotten into true crime which was like a, a while back like a long time ago um but ever since then like you know I've been real cautious about things and like sometimes I'll just think about stuff like you know I'll just think like that weird house on the end of the street like what if there's somebody in that person's basement yeah, or like you, you know, know or you like a never, kid just walking with somebody like are you sure that's their kid like you i'm really know. just like on edge and like aware of like everything now ever since i got into true crime and so to me like i would be like well honestly i don't even know if i would catch on to that you know yeah these type of things, like you, all you the sightings of him seem like you know just normal just, interactions. Yes, nothing like and obscene. And that's the, that's what's so scary about it. You just it's just know. under the radar. Yeah. Oof. And so when he finally made it to Craig, the young man spoke to at least three people at the dock because he was you know trying to find help for this burning ship. Witnesses, apparently, yeah. So each person described him as a slight man with a scarred or pockmarked face. Mm-hmm. The investors. Skiff was also found tied to a dock nearby, abandoned and undamaged. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of, um, like, a fact that you should note because in a lot of cases, actually, um, you do end up seeing that the person that, like, did the crime, like, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, they try to get close to the police that are involved in the crime or, you know, the news reporters or even, like, the searches that they do, like, if it's a missing right. person or whatnot, right, right. just so they can keep track of, like, where the police and law enforcement is going with the case and, like, if they have any leads. Like, a lot of criminals do that to kind of, like, keep an eye out, which is, like, if you think about it, it's kind of smart, I guess, but... Damn, like, it's one of those things where, like, he was so close and, like, just in it, right, boldly in the scene, and nobody just caught on to who he was, you know? It's, like, it's just terrible. It's terrible stuff. It's really scary, honestly, stuff like yeah. that just happens. And, you know, I've done some more research on the case, and, you know, those crew members went over to try and put out the flames, and they did stop some of them, and they were dying down. But it gets really scary because the emergency personnel, they boarded the burned out husk of the investor to scope for any potential survivors and discovered at least four sets of human remains, which had been burned beyond all recognition, but pointed to absolute tragedy falling upon those aboard. It was initially believed that an accidental fire had broken out and killed those aboard, but at that moment, nobody knew who exactly had been aboard the craft when the fire broke out. Doesn't seem too accidental if there was a man that was right, seen just, getting two gallons right, of gas and probably gas. in the the gas containers, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And he left on the boat's skiff also. Yeah, that's suspicious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, um, that gets really terrible. And it says authorities began to probe the scene, looking for a potential cause of the fire, and began removing the sets of human remains from the craft. However, as they did so, flames would break out again, delaying the recovery efforts and making it hard to determine just how many people had been aboard the investor when the fire broke out. While emergency personnel would eventually quell the flames over the next several hours, heading into the morning of September 8th, the four bodies recovered from the investor were sent to Anchorage to be identified, and for investigators to determine an official cause of death which would end up putting a much darker spin on this entire 
Thursday, September 9th, autopsies would be performed in at least two of the four bodies that had been recovered from the burning investor. These bodies, which would be identified as 28-year-olds Mark and Irene Coulters. They both showed signs of having been murdered before the fire with forensic examinations revealing gunshot wounds to the head. And these weren't military-style gunshot wounds, right? Uh, no, they weren't, like, to the back of the head or execution-style in any in any sense. Well, that's what I meant, yes, execution-style. Yeah. <laughs> but investigators would never quite elaborate exactly what that meant. So, you know, it could have just been shot, like... Just because, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't point-blank either? No, it wasn't point-blank. So they were just shot? Yeah, just shot. Hmm. Almost like quick with it, you know, because mm -hmm. it doesn't seem too personal. It doesn't seem personal at or all. out of rage, really. Yeah, no. I feel like it's more of like a heat in the heat of the moment type of deal. It was designed not to burn, actually. So they were probably dousing that thing. Right. Wow. Making sure. Yeah. They're honestly, trying to get rid of evidence. Yeah, definitely. That's what they were really definitely. Trying to do. Any widespread fire would have had to have been initially intentionally started because of the way the ship had been designed. So it goes, so it wasn't an accident. Right. Couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. It's, it goes on to say investigators theorize that the fire had been started to cover up the crime, which you know, like you just stated. Yes. Disposing of the evidence of the victim's body, likely well after the victims aboard the craft had been killed. Perhaps even an entire day later, due to the presumably quick spread on September 7th, which was more than 24 hours after the investor had slowly drifted away from the dock in Craig and been piloted by that mysterious dude. And nobody bothered to, like, call that in? Yeah, nobody bothered to call if, in. If everybody in. says that the guy was mysterious... Right. You would think that somebody would have called it in. Exactly. That's what I would have. Or like, That's you know, made a report. Because yeah. I'm sure there are like officials. Yeah, there has to be. For fishing. Like, I'm sure they have some type yeah. of like hierarchy yeah. where you can right. like get a hold of somebody and make the phone call and say, hey, you know, so-and-so like this ship or this line is, it's got a suspicious guy right. driving the boat. What the heck? And it goes on and you say, based on evidence recovered at the scene, it was believed that the culprit or culprits of this vile act had first attempted to scuttle the ship, opening up the sea cocks and attempting to sink the craft near Fish Egg Island where it had been anchored on the morning of September 6th. However, they had likely discovered the ship still floating a day later on September 7th and decided to return to the ship and set it on fire using an accelerant that spread the flames quickly, allowing it to burn for several hours. Just so letting it they were, roast. Yeah, like they much. were. They did what they did, and they. So the reason why he, the perpetrator, went back to burn it is because he saw that the ship was still there yeah. because the fog was, had lifted. Right, he was now, trying to get rid of it. Now the fog would have stayed. You never know. He right. might not have went back and like tried to exactly cover his tracks, and then you might have been able to find something. Exactly, you never know. While this seems like a likely series of events, it didn't explain why the crime happened or why the individual or individuals involved had waited so long to set the investor on fire. So Sergeant Charles Miller of the Alaska State Troopers who oversaw the investigation during this early period would tell reporters from People, he said, um, every time I pursue something, I keep coming up short. There's always something that doesn't fit. One thing that stuck in my Craw is why the murderer didn't burn the boat right away or at night when there was darkness to cover his escape. So he just burnt it in broad daylight? Yeah, no, early in the morning. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. 
and but that's so odd because that's when fishermen are out that's when everybody is out exactly like so it didn't even care to like try to hide his tracks didn't care at all and i wonder (laughs) if cry is like a slang word in alaska like for Mm -hmm. his head right (laughs) he also said there must have been some compelling reason that caused him to do it in broad daylight right which right probably because it was a last minute thought like damn i need to burn this evidence Mm -hmm. like you know right he's probably like i might just have to risk it and run but at least let me burn this evidence it's just so gross like it is doing the research and like reading up on this case like it's yeah. it's pretty sad this case and the last one the last one was sad just because it was so open-ended and i i left that case with so many questions yeah and i feel like this case has me feeling the same way mm. you know it's just very open-ended and you don't know like you really don't know there's so many possibilities and all of them seem plausible but that's the thing you just don't know it's just it can get frustrating but that's what makes it so interesting because it's like like, a lot of these times like people don't even have a motive for doing the things that they do it's just they just do it i feel like it's 50 50 because there's a lot of cases where there's motive oh yeah yeah no and there's a lot of cases where there isn't but it's just crazy and then typically like with cases that do have a motive the motives are crazy like you know anything could be a motive like Mm -hmm. you could just walk down the street and you know somebody says oh i hate your haircut and that's just the day you decide to snap you know like just little stuff it could be anything anything, you know like what was your motive oh well they were rude to me you know like i was already going through a hard time like a shitty week shitty year whatever Mm -hmm. and i was at the tip of my breaking point and that just sent me off the edge like really anything could be a motive in a crime and it's kind of scary and that's why for me personally like in everyday life i try to be be a positive person and like kind of like radiate kindness and positivity and you know just spread love because you never know how someone's feeling you never know what could be the the last words or what could be you just don't and you know just like i said like you don't know who you're running into in everyday life that could be at their breaking point and you could be the person that gets the backlash of whatever pent up aggression or anger that they have inside so you know it's just very scary especially these days people are very good at hiding how they feel and Mm -hmm. you know what's going on in their head especially being able to easily disconnect yeah in today's society definitely disconnect yeah Yeah. you know with people being so focused on their phones and like just what's going on within like your own life like everybody is just so self-inclined that you don't really look outward and you don't see your surroundings for what they are and you don't see the people around you for you know what they are and so you don't really catch up on like vibes like bad vibes and like right. you know how people might it's be feeling harder for people to it is harder as opposed yeah. to like years ago where everybody was like seeing each other in person and you right read people yeah and it. you don't really acquire that skill when everything is electronic right you know right. and everything because anybody can put on any persona they want now. yeah dude <laughs> i kid you not i am so notorious for texting lol and I'm not even laughing. Bro, you're not I will the text only one. it with a straight face. I know I'm not the only <laughs> one, but I'm so bad at it. I can't even remember. Like I always text LOL, to, like, but I can't even remember. <laughs> it does spice it up, but like yeah. I can't remember the last time I text LOL and was actually laughing. Oof. 
Because it's not, nothing's really funny. No, like, <laughs> shit do be funny. But, like, I just say LOL just to be lighthearted. Because yeah. sometimes you just need a little LOL in your life. <laughs> so, uh, authorities actually did find a third victim from the crime scene. And this happened to be five-year-old Kimberly Coulters. And so... this. And was she shot as well? No, it said that... Um, Unlike her parents, however, it could be it could not be determined whether she had also been a shooting victim due to the decomposed state of her remains. She would be fault and there were burn victims right, too. Right. I forgot. Yeah. So also they found um, Mike Stewart, you know Mark's cousin, and mm-hmm. um, whose mother confirmed the following week that he had been ID'd as the fourth body originally pulled from the crowd. And so with that's crazy because just imagine what their family was going through. Not only do you have Mark, his wife, their two kids, but also she was pregnant with their third. Mm-hmm. And does it say if they if the third one was a boy or a girl, or did they not know yet? Oh, uh, they didn't know. Okay, so she was early in her pregnancy. So right. they had their third child, Mark, his wife, their two kids, and his cousin. That's six family members. Like, I can only imagine how their family felt. Right, like devastated, completely yeah. broken apart. Six like, deaths in your family at one time. Right. That's Unbelievable. crazy. Especially with the expecting like newborn on the way too. That yeah. really had to hit, probably hit, you know, yeah. their mothers and like, you know, all them really I, I'm sure it hit everybody very yeah. hard, yes. So it gets even deeper because experts were reasonably concerned that the three other partial bodies they have recovered belong to... The remaining crewmen, you know, Chris mm-hmm. Heyman, Dean Moon, and Jerome Keon. But they would struggle to confirm these remains as theirs because, you know, everything is so charred. Yeah. So, I'm sure it was hard to identify. Mm-hmm. Damn. But they end up um, confirming Jerome Keon as the fifth victim of their investor murders due to a piece of jawbone that was linked to Keon through dental records, albeit loosely. But he would be the last one confirmed. And with that fate of the other, the the fate of the other crewmen was completely unknown. Then this brings another question. It says Mark comes in the form of another large question mark comes in the form of four-year-old John Coulters, the son of uh, investor captain and wife. It was believed that John had died aboard the burning ship, but it was. Theorized that his body had been left in the epic center of where the fire had been started, and his body had been burned to ash, leaving nothing behind for the investors to find. This would be the working theory moving forward for the investigators who struggled to make sense of this savage crime. So they couldn't find his body, and they assumed that it was because yeah. he was burned to ash. Yeah, they just assumed that he was just ash at this oh point. Oh my god. And that's the son, right? Mm-hmm, that's the, the four year old. That is terrible, dude. Yeah. I'm like I it's terrible either way but I would hope that he was already dead. I really hope prior so too. to that. Yeah. I would hope that he wasn't just scared in his last moment. Well, he probably was still scared in his last moments, oh, but yeah. having to feel the pain of burning alive. Mm, it's scary like Yeah. I'm hoping that he was deceased prior I to I really hope fire. so too. Aboard the burned-out husk of the investor, investigators would find a two twenty-three Ruger rifle, which was initially theorized to have been the murder weapon. But FBI technicians would be unable to make out much from the bullet fragments recovered from the crime scene, simply because they were so damaged. 
As such, authorities would not be able to initially reveal what type of weapon had been used in the murders, but would later on reveal after more extensive testing had taken place that Mark and Irene Coulters had been shot with a twenty-two caliber firearm. Hmm. Hmm. So. So it wasn't the rifle. No, the rifle. But there was, was a rifle on board, and they weren't even yeah, able to defend themselves with right. all those people. Right. Like I wonder if the gunshots were heard by everybody else on right. the ship, like on board. Right. Because, I mean, it was a pretty decent-sized ship. Yeah. So. Even though authorities would only be able to identify the cause of death in two of the five confirmed murders, that of Mark and Irene Coulter, investigators believe that all eight victims had been killed before the fire was started. Of the bodies recovered, none showed any signs of carbon monoxide having been trapped in their lungs, which indicated that all of the known victims had died of gunshot wounds or other similar means. But due to the destroyed state of their remains, as well as the crime scene around them, it would be difficult to confirm that moving forward. So it was too gruesome for them to even come to a conclusion. Yep. Yep. Following the murder of the eight people aboard the investor, the killer or killers might have stayed aboard the ship until the following morning, collecting his or her thoughts and figuring out what they would do next. Before deciding to quietly drift off into the harbor, where the investor was later anchored near Fish Egg Island, here, they attempted to scuttle the ship, leaving it in the thick fog that had rolled in the area, hoping that the ship would sink without attracting any attention. So, But it didn't. <laughs> right. That's the reason why they went back to set it on fire. Exactly. Using the investor's skiff, the killer or killers had then gone back to Craig, only to find the investor still floating the following morning on September 7th. At this point, panic had possibly started to set in, and they had decided to purchase gasoline at a shop in Craig where they were spotted by at least one witness before returning to the investor and setting it on fire. After this, they abandoned the vehicle aboard the same skiff and were spotted that afternoon by crew members of the casino as well as some other Craig locals who mistook him for a member of the investor's crew seeking help. Just trash. Dude. Tried to blend in. Mm-hmm. From here, this young man would disappear forever, leaving behind the investor's skiff, which was found... Tied to the dock and Craig, investigators believe that he then left the area aboard another fishing vessel, perhaps being a part of the crew that left to take advantage of the recently reopened salmon season, or hitching a ride with another crew headed back toward the lower 48, which is where all the ships would go, you know, toward Bellingham. Mm -hmm. Like the, the just docking area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Over the next few months, investigators would travel back and forth between Craig and northwestern Washington State, the area near Bellingham and Blair where many of the salmon fishing crews came from and would interview dozens of potential witnesses and persons of interest, any of whom may have been the killer. Yeah. So Just imagine the, that job. Yeah, so at this point... They could have been. What if they did interview him? Right. I think they probably did. Or her. Could have been a she. Could have been. Could you have never been. Know. Women are capable of gruesome things as well. Mm-hmm. By November of 1982, this case had started to fade from the headlines, but remained just as relevant to those who had known or cared for the victims, all of whom were left without answers in the wake of this mass murder. So, this ended up, you know, the cold mm. ended up going cold, and then you get stuff like a $15,000 reward had been compiled by fishermen and others with a, vessel interest, with a vested interest in solving the crime, worried that the killer could be anyone among them. Because it could have been. Right. It could have been anybody, and they don't know, and, and that's, that's the scary, scary thing. Part. You just yeah. don't know. 
At the killer point, next door. At this point, a sketch of the potential suspect had been distributed to the fishing vessels throughout the Pacific Northwest, with it being theorized that the young man seen aboard the investor's skiff before hanging it in the Craig had left aboard one of the area's fishing vessels. Even though descriptions of this young man varied among certain witnesses, investigators had begun compiling all this information into a single profile. The profile released by investigators described a suspicious young man believed to be the killer as a young white man in his late teens or early 20s who stood somewhere between 5'9 and 6 feet tall was a slim or average build, roughly 160 pounds, you know, give or take, soaking wet, with slightly long and unkipped blonde or light brown hair, a pockmarked or slightly scarred complexion, and glasses with rectangular lenses. That's very distinct. Very. So, if you remember... You would think that the they would have been able to pinpoint something. Right. If you remember the last two accounts, these all these characteristics were brought up. Very similar, yes. Yeah. Except for the whole late teens, early 20s right, bit. Right. Because um, that kind of just adds a whole other element to mm-hmm. it. Like, definitely probably wasn't personal. I think it was either just a crime out of... Honestly, it could have been a crime out of boredom. Or even in hopes to find, you know, money. And probably didn't. Because, you know, during this time, there was a lot of trading and selling going on. So, right. there's money, like, flowing everywhere. Because this is a really huge business in Alaska. Um, really all over the Pacific Northwest as well. Like, just on the, like, edge of the water where all the ports are and docks. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's huge. Fishing is huge over here. So... By the spring of 1984, the investigation was attempting to rejuvenate interest in the case. That March, four Alaska state troopers arrived in Washington State to remind the public that while the case was still unsolved, they, the investigation, the investigative body overseeing it, were not going to forget it. After arriving in Washington, they began speaking to numerous individuals that lived in Whatcom County. Probably Whatcom. Whatcom? Mm -hmm. The same county that many of the victims had been from who were involved in somewhat nomadic lifestyle of commercial fishing. If you recall, salmon fishing and ended the week after. So that means that the people that they interviewed were people that would have been around mm-hmm. during that time because they were a part of like the fishing trade and the fishing lifestyle. All right. It says, if you, if you recall, salmon fishing and ended the week after the murders, so many of the people that had been in Craig at the time had gone home shortly thereafter. Which only added to the disadvantage. The investigators were already uh now they were revisiting some of their leads from early on, interviewing some people from the first time and re interviewing others. Many of the people that investigators spoke to during this period were suspects or POIs that investigators had been unable to eliminate in the case, which at this point had become the largest in Alaskan state history. Which is why this is our case for the FNC series, um, yep. part two, because this was a case that definitely shook Alaska, I think, because it was so morbid as well. Definitely. Um, that really case. just added the fuel to the fire, I guess you could say. If you go later on in the year, around September 10th of 1984, just a few days after the second anniversary of the investor murders, Police announced that they were charging a man in the crime, and his name was John Kenneth Peel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lead. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Person of interest. Right. 
It says the 24-year-old Bellingham native had been a favorite suspect for quite some time and was officially taken into custody by Washington authorities at 7.15 that Monday morning. Authorities from Ketchikan, Alaska were charging him with all eight murders, and he would be arraigned later that day in Whatcom County, which his bail set for a million dollars. He ain't getting out. Yeah, nah. <laughs> You're not getting out, dude. Nah, like, not, a million? Not at all, bro. Honestly, though, I personally think that's kind of low. I For eight so. people, eight lives. I think so, too. All great futures. All of them had something to look forward to. Right. Even the children. The children could have been who knows what. And on top of that, it was technically nine murders, yeah. not eight because of including the unborn the, child. Yeah, including... So... Really, just an overall sad situation, and honestly, I don't think a million dollars is enough for all of those lives. I think it should be eight million, I think, or even nine million. It should be a million each because that yeah, is just like, why, dude. I mean, he's not gonna get out off of a million, but right, but still. just to throw it in his face. Mm. <laughs> Additionally, prosecutors were filing a motion to extradite Peel to Alaska, where they hoped. The trial could take place, even though the victims and suspect had lived in Washington. The crime itself taking place in Alaska, so it's in their jurisdiction. Yeah, you know, jurisdiction things. Yeah, it was believed that John Peel, a young man who matched the suspect description released by authorities, had been familiar with both the Colthurst family and the other crew members aboard the Investor. Peel had been a prior crew member of Mark, um, having worked with him aboard his previous ship during the 1980 and 81 fishing seasons. And it was believed by many that their relationship had soured in the months before the murders. Motive. So, motive? Potential motive? Sounds like it to me. Yeah. Hmm. He was probably mad. Right, definitely. Sour. But, like, <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah. Like, I wonder what could have happened to, you know, kind of make the relationship go bad. And I wonder to whose fault that was. Right, right. So it says, even though Peel had eventually found work for another ship, it was believed that he had been fired by Colthurst the prior summer, and it was reported by at least one witness that the two had encountered each other the evening of the alleged murders. Well, then, mm. that's pretty strong. Right. Okay, so if you ask me, that's pretty right. damning Pretty evidence. damning evidence. And I wonder if he even had an alibi. Probably not. Mm. In the two years... Since the investor investor murders, John Peel had started a family with his wife who had given birth to a son roughly one year prior. To be around for his family, he had become a shipbuilder in the Bellingham area, which allowed him to support his family without having to leave for months on end. And Paul Edscorn, a spokesman for the Alaska State Trooper, spoke vaguely about the specific circumstances that implicated Peel in the crime. He said he had, he had served as a crew member for Mark Coulters in 1981. And he may have been in 1980. I don't know. In 1982, he was a crew member on another boat in Craig at the time of the homicide. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So maybe he did. Wrong place, wrong time, probably. Yeah. He probably saw him and was like, you know what? Right. Like, I feel like this dude probably fucked me over and I'm going to take back the power and take back what's mine and... You know, it's probably how he felt when he saw him, especially encountering him and having that interaction, however that interaction might have went. Right, nobody knows. Probably nobody pushed him over the edge. Like right. I was saying, you never know who you're going to run into and they could be at their breaking point. And he was probably just like, 
right there like yeah, yeah. he was like you're here i'm here and right let's have this conversation about he why probably he, fired me. he probably yeah wanted to talk you know about like i want an explanation like you know what was your reason for firing me and mark was probably like dude i'm not trying to right not right now <laughs> you know no, like birthday, i don't have to explain like, anything to you right, you know the like coming up and he probably didn't like that at all of course you know investigators thought about this and they thought that was his motive for doing what he did so then it goes, shortly after the arrest of John Pill, the grand jury would be assembled to evaluate all the evidence that prosecutors had put together with the co cooperation of the Alaska State Troopers and decided to file a crime indictment against Pill, officially charging him with all eight murders, as well as one count of first-degree arson. An extradition warrant would be filed a day later, allowing Pill to be transported to Alaska where the trial would take place. Right. And he also did take a polygraph test, um, which he had reportedly failed. And mm -hmm. polygraph tests aren't always 100% accurate. accurate and definitely got to take them with a grain of salt. But he did fail, though. So take with that information what you will. Um, mm. For investigators, that definitely raised an eyebrow for them. Right, and they were right. kind of like, okay. Another little Another thing little to check, add to the little, list. A little check mark on the yeah. list of things that we're looking for. Exactly. So, in November of 1984, John Kenneth Peel was moved to the Ketchikan Correctional Center and was set to begin trial there in January of 1986, where he was facing 20 years in prison for the arson charge alone, as well as 99 years for each of the eight murders. Oh, for each of them? Mm-hmm. So... Forget the bail. Forget all the rest of that. I think this covered it. <laughs> yeah, like 800 years. I think it covered it. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Well, 820 years, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty intense. I mean, obviously, he's not going to be in there for 800 years. Right. But oh, he's long damn. Long now. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's good that he served, you know? Yeah, At definitely. least somebody served for this case. Right. Um, and I think that's... I don't want to say it's 100% damning evidence that it was him, but there's a lot of it's questionable pretty, things. Uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, how could you not? Like, how could you not? Like, how, yeah, it's there, but you have to connect the pieces. Right. And like, I'm saying that because like in court, obviously DNA evidence is the most reliable, most, you know, um, looked for type of evidence to have in a courtroom but right. they probably didn't have that at the time right. so all of the accounts that they did have were what they had um to do yeah, yeah and witness accounts i think that was enough especially with having a motive mm -hmm. the dude had a motive uh completely out of anybody else that was there he had a reason so he probably got fired the summer before you know yeah you still you probably, probably didn't even mad. tell me why didn't even probably didn't even tell me why probably so, not know, i'm gonna meet you you know, at the beginning of the season, we're going to talk about it. See if I can get back on the crew. And he probably didn't and, even mean to. Right. It probably just happened spur of the moment, right. too. Especially since he was, like, trying to, like, find ways around it and cover up everything. Like, you know, he was freaking out. Right. All right. So, that is pretty much all for the case. And that's the complete story. Um, Pretty sad case. And really, even though there are details, like... There's still a lot of questions as to how it all went down. Like, it, there's really not a painted picture of the events and how they took place. Um, so, there are a lot of questions in this case. Um, and the first one would be, what do you think actually happened the night 
of the murders. Right. Like, leading up to or even just how it took place um, because there really aren't any details on how and especially with the victims being burned so badly only they were only able to come to a conclusion that Mark and his wife were shot because they were somehow able to like recover their bodies and and find that evidence through the autopsy but as far as the other victims it's never been confirmed as to how they died, right. um, cause of death. So, what do you think actually happened to all other technically seven victims? I guess the baby probably passed away because of Irene, right? Yeah, you know, so, probably, yeah. Just like as soon as she, like her lifeline was gone, the baby's right. was too. I'm sure. Right. Um, and the second question is: Do you believe John Peel's sentence was enough? And personally. I think it was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it definitely was. And I'm I'm honestly glad that he didn't get any life sentence because um, life sentences are not life. I'm glad he didn't get death sentence because, you know, death sentences, yeah. um, the inmates are treated better on death row because you're signed up to die. And, yes. You know, yeah. So, yeah, they have a little bit more luxury on death row i guess you could say um more privileges so i'm glad that he didn't get death because then he would have had privileges but the thing is there's no like dna to tie him to the case so like if he really didn't do it sucks for that guy but if he did the police did the damn thing with what they had they did the damn thing for sure so yeah That just concludes episode six of Deeper Than Most. And this was part two of our FNC series. And we did Alaska. Did you enjoy this episode? Uh, I really liked it a lot. I liked it because the the case was very intriguing. It was. It seems like the more you like dig, like the deeper it gets, you know? Like there's layers to this case and... The layers are there, but they're quite transparent, mm-hmm. like an onion, you know. They're there, like there's the many onion. of them, but they're very vague and, you know, kind of hard to get a clear picture of what actually happened, you know. You don't know what actually happened, so right. <sighs> I wish we knew more. <laughs> I wish we did, but I, it seems like, you know, justice has been served. So yeah, <laughs> and I think as long as that happens, like, I'm fine with that. Right. I'm just nosy and I like to know details, but, um, yeah, so we're going to catch you guys next week on our seventh episode. Yeah, we're, we're almost to double digits, we're really guys. Getting up there now, guys. <laughs> I know it's only six. I get it. It doesn't sound like a lot, but to us it is. And you know, we've really been putting in the work, cranking out these episodes for you guys and we've been having a really fun time filming this for yeah, you guys love it. We and recording love it. and doing the research it's really fun like we get to educate ourselves and learn a, a lot you know about ourselves and the world like whenever we're researching these topics for you guys um so it's really fun to do i really love it i really enjoy it do you yeah, have any other words cool. for um, our listeners and viewers just be careful, people. Just be careful who you talk to. Be careful the things you interact with, the people you interact with. Just be careful. <laughs> yes. And also, we did a poll on our Instagram, guys. We do polls kind of often. Um, we did a poll on our Instagram, I want to say, last week. Yes. Asking you guys, 
if you wanted to see Celtic mythology or Norse mythology. And um, majority of the votes went to Norse mythology next. Ooh, so for our next fun. myth mashup, yeah, we're going to do Norse mythology. That'll be so fun. Also, if there are any God of War game players out there, uh, they're coming out with a second game soon for PS5. So be on the lookout for that, which does co cover Norse mythology again. Cool. So. Ooh, that's kind of fitting. Mm. That'll be cool. Yeah. So yeah, keep an eye out for Norse mythology. Um, and then after this FNC episode, the next state that we're going to be covering is... Arizona. Yes. <laughs> Arizona. So that one will be really fun. Um, it's a very interesting case, too. I'm really excited about that one. Oh, yeah? yeah, when I was researching it, the more I researched, the more information there was. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think I got all oh, the details that. of that case. So stay tuned for our next FNC episode. because I, Just be on the lookout for them. Because we love them. And yeah. we hope that you guys are liking them, too. So Yeah. So... I think that's it. And we really enjoy talking to you guys this week and covering Alaska. Alrighty, Cosmonites. I've been your host, DJ. And I've been your host, Sav. Tune in next week to get Deeper, deeper Than, than most. most.